Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz, editor of the journal and regular contributor to the podcast. Today on the show, we talk with Katie Williams, author of Tell the Machine Goodnight. Our discussion covers her novel, the process of writing it, and the role of technology in the book and our lives. I was joined by editors Jackie Kenny and Sam Alworth for this interview. We hope you enjoy the talk. Katie Williams is the author of the novel Tell the Machine Goodnight and the young adult novels Absent and The Space Between Trees. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Best American Fantasy, American Short Fiction, Prairie Schooner, Subtropics, and elsewhere. She earned her MFA from the Missioner Center for Writers at the University of Texas, and she teaches at the Emerson College in Boston. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for talking with me. Well, I love that you break the novel into different narratives without breaking the storyline. What made you decide that you wanted to tell this story from different perspectives? Did you think that telling it from only one perspective would limit the story in some way? Well, the novel started out with what I thought was going to be a short story. So the first chapter of the novel, Pearl's chapter, um, I wrote that as a short story. And when I got to the end of it, I realized I still had a lot of questions about the characters. I had questions about Pearl's son, Rhett, where he'd been, what his um, apricity uh, report was going to be. And so I realized I wanted to write on and answer some of those questions. Um, And because Pearl, the mother in the book, because she doesn't seem to fully understand Rhett's perspective, I felt like it was necessary to jump into his point of view to tell his story from his perspective. And so I think that's how it began, that I jumped from character to character. Um, And as I kept going, I I found it was really interesting and um, fulfilling for me to look at happiness from these different perspectives, because happiness is so personal, and we all define it in a slightly different way for ourselves, go after it in a slightly different way. And so by jumping from character perspective to character perspective, I could kind of get at that. Yeah, okay. Um, so my first question is, the Apricity readings are considered banned, or some of them are considered banned and marked with a star. Um, if the goal is personal happiness, why is reading, uh, is the reading limited by pages upon pages of restricted ways to happiness? Um, and is the road to happiness limited to non-destructive actions to preserve the happiness of society as a whole? And with that, do you think that personal happiness is not as important as societal happiness? Uh, yeah, so uh, how I came up with the, the banned apricity reading, the one, the redacted apricity reading, is, well, it was just, um, it was me being tricky as a writer. Um, I ended the first chapter with this question of what the son's apricity reading was going to be. And then I couldn't think of an answer that would be satisfying 
for the reader. And so I came up with this sort of trick <laughs> of having it be veiled or having it be redacted. So we didn't know quite what it was. Um, and then also, I just thought this was something that would actually happen if this technology existed. I thought that some people would get recommendations that would not be socially acceptable or, or really legal, and that the company itself couldn't, for, for legal reasons, for reasons of liability, recommend that people do things that would be, for example, harmful to someone else. So that's how I came up with the idea of the redactions. Um, but to answer your second question, uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, I do think societal happiness is, I guess personally, I think societal happiness is more important than individual happiness. If, if, it, if an act of individual happiness is going to harm others or harm society as a whole, uh, yeah, morally, I do think that, that the larger happiness is important. Um, it's interesting because we see tech companies right now struggling with these issues of, um, you know, like Facebook with the information mining. It's been doing the personal data. It's been getting and and the ramifications of that. We do see companies that have been tech companies that have been struggling with this idea of do they forward the um, the sort of aim of their company or do they need to think about larger moral questions about how this technology in their company is being used and what the effect on, say, a presidential election is going to be. Yeah, I can remember, um, I don't know what I was watching, but it was uh, uh, Google had hired a ethical philosopher um, to think about the kind of information they were, they were gathering and the kind of information they were conveying um, because their influence is so m massive, you know, billions of yeah. people are kind of, their opinions can be swayed by this company. And the, and it was funny, the guy who was the philosopher who was, you know, on, on the staff said, most people, most younger people, it's the, uh, they do with their information, the opposite of what they should like. The people who shouldn't have their information, they don't care. <laughs> but the people um, who should, like their parents, they hide, like where they're yeah. where they're searching uh, and so on. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of these companies have made a lot of public noise about having an ethical stance and, and putting good into the world. And then we've been seeing these sort of conflicts where what ends up happening, and sometimes. You know, it's not even the company's clear intention that something bad happens, but just how the technology ends up working out, because we don't fully understand all the ramifications of how the technology is going to work in society, does create some kind of problem. Yeah. And then how are they going to deal with it? Yeah. Um, and I think we're seeing that play out in the news right now. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my next question is... Um a turning point for Rhett in the novel is when he meets Z and they resort to the virtual reality, um, climbing the mountain and trying to find peace within themselves. Uh, what do you think the relationship between reality, virtual reality, and finding peace in today's society is? Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to show, hmm, I wanted to show technology in a full way. So I didn't want to just show technology as a societal ill 
or have the book be just a warning against the misuses of technology or the over-reliance of technology. So I think that's in there, too. Um, I also wanted to show how technology can present opportunities um, for connection, for healing. Uh, the Internet's really, and social media is really interesting because it has these two opposites that sit alongside each other, which are that in one way it can, I think, really isolate and disconnect us, the idea of everyone just sitting in their own room, yeah. <laughs> staring at a screen and not getting out into the world and, and having authentic connections with people. But at the same time, I, I think it really can provide opportunities for connection, provide opportunities for people to meet others who get them, to um, stay in touch with people that live far away. I mean, if we if we think about, you know, not, may not be deep relationships, but if we think about the people we're still in touch with from, say, high school, elementary school, over social media that, I mean, I wouldn't have any idea about a lot of the people um, on my Facebook if it weren't for Facebook. So I do think there is this other side of technology where it, it, does, it does allow for positives, for interpersonal connection, for self-knowledge, for, for peace. And, and, and I wanted to show that too. And hopefully as we use technology more, um, we'll learn how to sort of bend it to this way instead of, and, and to, to guard against the negative effects of it. I, I am hopeful for that. Yeah, you um, you just show the good and bad of technology in your book. It's, it's really realistic. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, it, like I said, it was, you know, not my intention to give any kind of warning about technology or even any kind of message about it. I just, I wanted to show how how we relate to it. I think it's an extension of people, right? We created the technology. So I wanted to show the different ways in which it expresses who we are as people. So my next question is um, about happiness in this book and how it relates to art. Um, because the characters are constantly denying themselves happiness and torturing themselves even despite the fact that they live in a world where they can get the answer to their happiness through technology. Um, and one of the ways they do this is through art. Uh, for example, Elliot's exhibits and Kala's uh, fear experiments. Can you talk about, about the relationship between art and happiness in your book? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> one of the things I, I realized looking back on the book after I'd written it is that for a book about happiness, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes down. There's a lot of bleak <laughs> happenings. <laughs> um, but I mean, this is this is one of the challenges of writing a book about happiness is that in fiction, I mean, fiction is about conflict. Fiction is about when things go wrong. And so, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I had to keep working, looking at bringing in those conflicts to make the story, to make the story move and grow. Um, it's interesting, the idea that instead of, um, that the art in, in the story is a kind of torture or punishment for the characters engaging in it, uh, Elliot's art piece where he 
makes himself sick on happiness, basically. Uh, I, he's a character who... I don't know if I totally believed in, in the sort of authenticity of that piece for him. I think he, he he's a character who, not to diminish him at all, um, or say he isn't a full person, but who doesn't experience... His life has been very easy, I think. And he, I don't know if he experiences the sort of... Um, depths of sadness the way his son does. Um, I don't know if he's getting the same range as some of the other characters in his experience of happiness. And I, his art piece almost felt like a reaching for, mm. for that. Um, I, to be honest, I think, you know, it was kind of bullshit. <laughs> and he is, the, <laughs> he is a bullshit artist in, in all meanings of that phrase. Um, Kala, who's the, the horror movie ingenue, um, well, let me start by saying I'm a horror movie fan and I've watched them since I was a little girl and I'm really fascinated with the idea that when we watch horror, it provides a kind of entertainment or a release for us. Um, and I'm also really interested in the way that horror art and and gender intersect. Mm. Uh, she, she would almost be, Calla would almost be the opposite of Elliot, in my view, um, in her expression or experiments with art, because I think she is going into it really authentically. Um, she, she, she wants to make art that impacts people, and she happens to be in a field where that means uh, getting in a vat with a bunch of centipedes and spiders. <laughs> so. Yeah, um... Elliot seems more interested in whether he can latch on to that next big idea that will put him in a bunch of galleries. And she seems almost, I don't know, manipulated into situations or agreeing to situations, you know, that she yeah. knows are going to be, be really bad for her. But she doesn't, she doesn't, she's not thinking about the outcome other than it will be terrifying. Right. Right. I mean, and just to talk about art making too. I, I, I I'm an artist, um, and I and I believe fully in its importance um, to society, understanding who it is, to us as individuals, understanding more deeply who we are, um, to understanding perspectives different from one's own. But the actual process of of making art, at least for me, sitting down and facing a blank page. It, it isn't a. I'm not filled with joy when I do that. Um, it's, it's a pretty uncomfortable, uncomfortable process yeah. uh, sometimes. So I wouldn't call it torturous, but um, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily feel happy to actually contend with it. And there's probably no. We, we can't buy a Katie Williams ringtone for when you're. The Califax Scream Town. But I actually did really enjoy Cal as a character, and I think it is because of that authenticity that she had, and just like, like willingness to improve herself and her art. I don't know. She was cool. Um, I I really enjoyed the uniqueness of each character in the book, um, and I particularly liked Rhett and Val. They were my favorites. <laughs> Um, do you have a process when it comes to creative, 
creating your characters, and can you tell us what that process is like? Um, yeah, well, char- character is sort of the beginning and middle and end of it for me. It's the most important thing to me when I write um, is to fully render a character on the page, and so it's what I'm always working toward. Um, for me, I don't know a better way of creating character than actually writing the character out on the page and, and seeing what works and seeing what doesn't. Actually, I have to write the story to get to know the characters. I've tried things like character inventories or character exercises before, and they just they don't they don't really seem to work for me for whatever the reason. So um, I, I write the character on the page, and, and sometimes I realize I've written in the wrong direction or that something feels false or this, you know, doesn't feel true to who the character is shaping up to be, and I'll have to backtrack and try again. But um, really, for me, it's simply writing the story. And I look for moments that reveal something something um, that goes to the center of who that character is. And often it's a mistake the character makes, um, the author, Justin Cronin, he recommends uh, when you're first writing a story to have your character do something they can't take back, mm. which I think is great advice. Uh, there's a mistake the character will make or a strange perception they'll have, an observation they'll have, something they might notice that someone else wouldn't. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Rhett and Val as favorite characters. They're two of my favorites as well, and they're the two characters in the book who who tell their chapters in first person. They they tell their own story. The other characters, it's in limited third. It's an authorial voice that is privy to that character's thoughts. Um, but the character isn't speaking their own story for themselves. Rhett and Val do. And one way that I get to know who my characters are is is through their voices, through the way they use language and the way they talk about their lives. Um, so, yeah, it's cool that those characters sort of popped off the page for you. Um, and I wonder if that's part of the reason. Sam Sam over here likes um, Rhett and Vale, but my favorite character was actually Pearl. Um, like, in the beginning of the story, she's she's kind of like a content character, and I didn't really know her that well but then you gave her that you know connection and worry she had with her son and that like like instantly gave her much more depth and I just fell in love with her right right then and there thank you thanks yeah I mean my, when part of my original conception was just this question of what if what if there's this happiness happiness technology that someone believes in just like a true believer believes that this technology works but they have someone in their lives who's inexplicably unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was Pearl and Rhett. And, and they, for me, are the heart of the book. Yeah. Can I ask, how did you decide um, who spoke in first person? Like, what was that process of what perspective goes to what character, I guess? Yeah, it's no, um, a great question. Um, I, you know, because... It started with Rhett. Okay, let me back up a sec. Um, I felt like I had to have a reason for a character to tell their own story, to speak in first person. 
Um, and it didn't have to be a big reason, but it, it had to be a good reason. And for Rhett, he is a character who he's really misunderstood. I think, you know, he has, he has anorexia, he has an eating disorder he's been struggling with. And people don't understand, you know, why. Why don't you just eat? You're killing yourself. And because he was dealing with that conflict and because I wanted to be as true as I could to what that experience might be like, it felt very important to me that he speak for himself. Um, and then Val, um, well, she she's also a character who's dealing with a lot of pain and who is, I think, misunderstood by a lot of people in her life, too. She's also a namer, so she works with language. And I felt that because she works with language that I wanted her to use her own language to tell her story too. And so that's how I arrived at um, the first person voice for her origin story. And and then her voice too, just kind of, sometimes you're given little gifts when you're <laughs> writing a novel and her, her voice was one that just, it, it just kind of came to me and, and, and it took me right through that story. Um, both Actually, both Val and Rhett's stories were, this is not my normal experience. I don't want to make it sound like it is, but they were, they were stories where the draft on the page, or the first draft is pretty much what ended up being the final draft. Um, and they were stories that I was able to write through from start to finish um, without many false turns. Uh, so, like I said, gifts, gifts I was given. <laughs> so my next question is going back to technology. Um, when I was reading this book, I felt like it was, it was like a soft sci-fi kind of genre, um, and I wanted to, to hear what you had to say about where your where Tell the Machine Goodnight would fall into like a genre category. Yeah, I, I think soft science fiction, soft sci-fi. Um, I think that that's fair. That's um, one of the ways I think about the genre of the book. Um, so it's not terribly interested in, and I'm not terribly interested in the workings of technology. I'm much more interested in how technology works on us. Mm. So the psychological, emotional, cultural ramifications of the technology, um, which is what you know, soft science fiction is all about. Um, the authors, some of the authors I, I love, um, Science fiction authors are Ursula K. Le Guin, Octavia Butler, these authors who do fit into, I think, that genre as well. Um, yeah. Well, even uh, I saw an interview with um, one of my favorite sci-fi writers is William Gibson. And when he, mm. when he started yeah. writing, he said that, um, you know, he was writing about virtual reality. You know, he coined the, the term cyberspace. And, yeah. you know, he said, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you how a computer worked. You know, to me, it was just like a box with magic inside of it. And he was using that as a sort of literary device in many ways, rather than, you know, being interested in, you know, how the circuits and whatever function. Well, yeah, yeah, that's great. And, you know, I, um, I think that's how a lot of us do experience our technology. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm on the smartphone right now, and it's this tiny little computer that can do all these things for me. And 
I mean, I, I know things like, oh, there's coding that went into this. There's, you know, uh, micro technology. But I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't really know how. I, <laughs> if it bricks, I have to take it to the Apple store. I yeah. don't really know how any of that works. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think we do experience our technology as, in a way, a kind of magic, and and I think that that does shape our relationship to it. Um, what we expect of it, how we experience it, what place it has in our lives. Yeah, it's funny. I tell, I often tell my students, um, you know, the smartphones that they're all trying not to look at while in class are <laughs> are more powerful than, you know, the technology that sent people to the moon in 1969. You know, they're holding yeah. that in their hand. You know. Yeah, Dean. I remember. Uh, Dean in class, like, um, as English students, you know, when we read, we'd have to look up stuff that we don't understand. Uh And when, like, he'd ask students about it and they didn't know the answer, he'd get really mad. He's like, why didn't you look it up? You have a phone right in front of you. Yeah. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we're so used to it. We touch them so many times during the day. I was reading this article about a teacher who was trying to keep her students from looking at their phones during class. I think they were looking, not looking up information, but looking, <laughs> looking at things not to do with class. And she said that she didn't want to require them to keep them in their bags because she knew that a lot of her students really needed to be able to touch their phone, yeah. even if they weren't looking on it, to feel like, to feel okay and to actually learn in her class. So I think she got these little bags that they put the phone in and the phone can't, the bags are locked until the end of class and then you have to go touch them to this plate to unlock them but they could have them out there and hold them which I find I find you know fascinating yeah I see that you know because they you know I'm in front of the class I see them actually reach for their phone and, and hold it and turn it in their hand and I'm like it's like a security blanket yeah yeah uh-huh. it's like their teddy bear or something you know well, I don't yeah. know. when I'm feeling uncomfortable <laughs> around people I don't know, I just pull out my phone. <laughs> Even pretending yeah. like I'm doing something makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. No, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I like to have my phone in, within reach too. So I'm not judging it. I get, I get it. Yeah. It, 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 it interests me. Uh, interests me. Okay, move, moving on a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you just discussed, you know, having sci-fi like a soft sci-fi. Um, as a genre that can categorize your book. But um, I I saw a lot of people online kind of categorize it as more of a speculative fiction. And I wonder if you kind of agree with that as well. And, like, how do you define speculative fiction? Yeah, well, the science fiction fans love their categories. Um, <laughs> maybe more than like any other genre. Like hundreds of subgenres, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so many subgenres. Um, yeah, yeah, I think speculative fiction is, is fair, too. Um, so speculative fiction is looking at where we are now and extrapolating out uh, a few steps or for some books more than a few steps. Like, what is, what, looking at, for example, how we use technology now and what kinds of technology are available and then imagining where technology is heading and where it may be taking us. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's, that's precisely what I was doing when I wrote the book. I was imagining what if there was, we, you know, we have these technologies that answer problems for us or that we think answer problems for us that are very small, but what if we had technology 
um, that answered the biggest question of all, what will make us happy? And then also, just along with that, you know, why is that a question that's so hard for us to answer ourselves? So it seems to be for, for many, many people. Yeah, there's kind of that same reliance. You know, th- thinking about it, um, I keep coming back to before the before the show today, we were talking a little bit about do, Andro- do androids dream of electric sheep? Um, yeah. And uh, n- not only the kind of mercerism and the climb, climbing the mountain, but the oh, there's yeah. a, there's a machine at the start where you can dial <laughs> you can dial six seven eight and it'll make you happy or you can dial yep, four. Put you in a mood. Yeah, yeah. And the oh, wow. it's the it's Deckard who's like refusing to dial. He's like, screw it. I'm not gonna. I don't want to dial anything. I'm just mad, you know. And in some ways, it's sort of similar, you know, that there's this solution right there, and a lot of a lot of people given that solution would prefer not to. Yeah, yeah, because you have to, you have to find it yourself, right? Yeah, it, it, it may be something you don't want to be done for you. I'd forgotten that part from "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" It's similar. It's yeah. similar to yeah. I'm sure it was there in the back of my brain somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So throughout the tell machine goodnight many of the characters undergo some form of destruction while destruction is harmful it also brings people together and leads a happiness and um for this uh example i was thinking more about you know saf's embarrassing video bringing her closer together with Rhett. um and i was wondering if you can expand on the dynamic of self-destruction or cruelty and happiness in your novel well like i said before (laughs) When you're writing a novel about happiness, you, you have to have conflict or bring trouble in somehow. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's, there's self-destruction, there's torture of animals. I mean, there's, there's, there's some bleak stuff in here. Um, and, and I think it creates a, a sort of a counterpoint to that idea of happiness um, that creates a, a tension between the two, the two poles of it. Um, we can think of happiness in a few different ways, right? We can think of it as a kind of placid contentment, like like Pearl seems to experience the the blanket over her head, um, or we can think of it as a kind of transport of joy. And then I think unhappiness, um, we can also think of that in a few different ways too, right? We can think of it as a kind of fog of a deep depression or or as as a type of, pain. Um, if we think of happiness, though, as just kind of a placid state of contentment, I don't know if that's something that when people are looking for happiness, I think they're looking for a kind of active engagement, a kind of engagement with themselves, engagement with others, and engagement with the world. And to have that kind of happiness, that kind of experience with happiness, if that is how you're going to define it, which I think is maybe how Rhett and Saf would define it, the younger characters in the novel. Mm-hmm. It might require some kind of destruction, some kind of shaking things up, some kind of change. Um, not accepting what's around you, but looking at how you want the world to be and how you want to be and understanding that to get to that point, you might have to go through some struggle. You might have to go through some uncomfortable experiences. Um, and that 
going through that is a way of realizing yourself and realizing what you want your life to be like and that that can be a, a form of happiness too. Okay. Good answer. <laughs> um. we, we kind of walked around, walked around the block and got there. <laughs> um, so as we discussed before, so uh, the machine apricity is supposed to be a simple solution to finding happiness. Um, it kind of reminds me of how Elliot is described as feeling a solution is more important than the complexities behind a problem. Do you feel like the desire of needing quick and easy answers reflects today's society? And what role do you think technology plays in this desire people have? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes I, I think we, we uh, look for quick fixes now, and, and I think that... You know, that's understandable, that's human, to want the solution now. I think that that expectation has been fueled in part by how quickly technology does some things for us. Um, the, the microwave generation is a term I've heard use. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's, I, do, I do think, um, I mean, we've been talk, touching on this, I think, a few different points in our talk here. Yeah, I, I do think we have, you know, we have these tiny little genies in our pocket, um, our smartphones, and they have so much power and they can give us so many things so quickly. Um, but there are little machines, there are little creations, and there are things they can't answer us and that they can't do for us. Um, like I said before, I didn't come into this book wanting to, with any kind of agenda about saying X, Y, or Z about technology. Um, but I did, as I wrote it, I did come to a feeling or an opinion, which is that we are just grabbing at our technology a little too carelessly and a little too much. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's a great power. Um, it's a great tool, but that we would it would be beneficial for us to use it a little more mindfully and to understand what it can and can't do for us. Um, like I said, it's a it's a tool, so we want to learn to use it and not have it using us. Yeah. Um. In Val's chapter, uh, she gives us the etymology of several words. Uh, one of those words is spell. And she even notes that um, in the root, there's a certain power in naming. Um, namely, the power to like control the thing named. Uh, and when I was reading, I noticed that there, that one character, or more than one character, renames Pearl. Like both Rhett and Elliot have their own pet names for her. And Kala tells Pearl that they are... They're both named after objects. In the same exchange, she notes, you can't, you can't really get into what they call you. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of naming and renaming in the novel? Sure, yeah. Well, I'll just say first, um, from, as a writer, uh, naming my characters is a very important part of, of, of the writing process and of how I get to know who they are. Um, to touch back on that earlier question, um, I will rename 
my character sometimes if the name doesn't feel right. And, and I feel like there's only so far I can go with their story until I have the right name for them. Um, I like a name that is familiar but not too familiar. So Pearl is actually named for uh, the street where the coffee shop where I wrote a lot of this novel was on Pearl Street. Um, and so that's how Pearl got her name. Um, I'll often use names from my childhood, like kids in my, you know, first grade class who <laughs> I haven't seen in years um, because it feels both close and, and it feels like there's room to invent and imagine. So it feels familiar and it feels unknown at the same time. Um, the, the idea of naming, it, this is what the apricity technology is really doing when it comes down to it. It is, it is naming the things that will make people happy. And so in, its, in a way, it, it's, it's, it's kind of naming who people are. Mm-hmm. It's naming something very deep about you know, their desires. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I think, uh, you know, one journey we see a lot of the characters go through is, you know, the apricity names something for them, and this is, this is the thing I name that is going to make you happy. And then the characters, they grapple with that, and they, they rename it for themselves in one way or another. Yeah, I, I, while you're talking, I was sort of thinking, and I, I, I can't like point to exactly where, but it, it sort of felt like, you know, Elliot, Elliot and his pet name for Pearl. In some ways, you know, she tolerates it, but she's it's not. She doesn't really like it, you know, because it because she's he's kind of claiming her in one way or another. Mm, yeah, yeah, he is. Even though they're yeah. divorced, and he's still. <laughs> Yeah, he still wants this claim on her intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, uh, the world of Tell the Machine Goodnight is dystopian, but it's complicated by the f- fact that the goal like, is happiness. Uh, it seems less in the tradition of 1984 than, like, say, A Brave New World. Uh, in fact, it's one of those books that doesn't fit neatly into any genre or tradition because so much of it is really familiar to contemporary life. Can you comment on the dystopian elements of the novel? Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I didn't, as I was writing the book, I didn't think about it as utopian or, or dystopian. I, I wanted to, I mean, it's just a, a little ways out in the future. It's not as far flung as a lot of science fiction novels. And and it, and, it, and it's my best guess for how the future is going to be. I I hope at least that we don't descend into a dystopia. I don't know if we'll ever fully reach a utopia. I, I think probably not. But people are too complicated and get in their own way mm-hmm. <laughs> too much mm-hmm. to, for for that to ever happen. I I hope we you know we're able to muddle along and make things a little bit better and a little bit better. Um, the dystopian aspect of the book for me is, is right there on the first page when uh, Melvin Waxler is <laughs> so blithely ready to cut off his finger because a machine tells him to. I guess that that is what, you know, sent a little shiver down my spine and made me chuckle a little grimly too, the idea that someone would just just obey a machine 
you know, have so much faith in technology and so <laughs> little desire to question it that they would just go ahead and do what the technology told them to without without a second thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember the, the scene and I think it's Pearl, you know, types something into the computer and says, okay, your insurance company has said they'd cover, you know, cover the removal of your finger. And he's like, well, then I guess there's no reason not to. <laughs> like, why, why not? not cut off my finger? And I was yeah. reading it and going, well, there is a reason. You won't have a finger anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then he says, well, it might, it might slow down my typing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's a little poke at late stage capitalism and yeah. the positions that a lot of workers are put in. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I found it interesting that Pearl starts to build models as a result of her own apricity. Um, we're specifically told on page 132 that she doesn't do it to create, but to manage. And I think Elliot, um, makes that observation. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of her building them in the book? Yeah. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how much I can say about it. Cause it's one of those things that just sort of, um, rose from the murk of my mind. Um, I, start stories with, I try to have three different things that I, I feel like have a, some kind of energy or resonance with each other. Um, often they're images, and sometimes they're like a line of dialogue or even a, a question or a, a, a plot idea, but um, often they're images, and for Tell the Machine, um, you know, one of the first images was these little models that Pearl makes. Another was a severed finger. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Pearl, she is, I mean, she is, she is a manager in a way. She's, 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 her job is to manage people's reactions to the tests they're taking. Um, in her personal life, she's trying to um, manage her son's, really intense illness and, and his happiness. And um, I think she is a kind of fixer. She ends up being that for Kala as well. Um, and she's a controller. So the idea that she would make these little models, make these little bodies, I think it makes sense for her psychologically. She's also in her job dealing with something really abstract and amorphous, this idea of happiness. And, and it's, a kind of prediction, so it's looking into the future. Um, so for her to be dealing with something concrete, creating these little models of animals and plants that are extinct, it has her dealing with, instead of abstraction, dealing with the concrete, dealing with the body, and instead of reaching into the future, reaching into the past. So I think it has a kind of tension or energy with what she does in her daily life, and maybe that's why it's, in a way, an outlet or a balm for her. Yeah. Um, because it is that sort of counterpoint. And I found it interesting that, I th I don't know if it's all, maybe one isn't, but uh, every everything is, it's not like she's building model cars or, you know, <laughs> yeah. sp spaceships. It's 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 biological things, you know, it's animals, it's it's plants, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, she's creating her own little world. I mean, you could say it's kind of like a godlike thing to yeah. do in a way. Um, and I guess you could say it's also sort of a godlike thing to do to tell people to sever fingers and divorce their wives right. <laughs> and find religion. Right. Yeah. Or or write a book. 
so towards the end of the book, um, Elliot kind of like changes her her models a little bit to his own like artsy design. Is that were you trying to make a message there in some way? Because that's kind of when she um, breaks down about the machine too. Is that um, her way of showing how she's she her life's kind of um, you know she do, she makes the models to manage her life because it's out of control. But is that her like breaking point? Is that kind of um, like a symbol of it? Oh yeah, he makes the model. Sometimes you forget. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. <know>. <laughs> Yeah, he makes the model. You're talking about when he makes the chimera at the end. He, like, mixes up all the parts and makes some weird creature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could never exist. Uh, yeah, it just seemed it seemed like a thing he would do. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wasn't sure if you just did it because of his character or if it, you know, reflected Pearl's, um, uh, you know, character in some way at that point in the book. I mean, it works yeah, both you know, ways, I guess. Yeah, I think he, well, and I think... You know, I'm. I think they have they they have some real affection between them and a real understanding for each other in a way as you know as artificial as parts of their relationship were, um, as manipulative as as Elliot can be. Uh, I do think they they know each other on a deep level. I mean, they were married for a number of years. They had a kid together, mm-hmm. and I think they do in a way, complement each other, um, as in they bring, they both bring different aspects to their relationship, and I mean, (laughs) Pearl is definitely the more grounded one, and Elliot is the more, the fabulist, right, he's a a fabulist, he's a a faker. An eccentric? And eccentric, yeah, 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 um, yeah. So, yeah, he makes a whimsical, improbable animal, and leaves it for her. Um, on page one forty one, we learn that from Val that the word machine comes from the Doric Greek and goes through several languages to the French. And she says that um, the original con- or the concept maybe in, was in the French. Um, was something more like autonomous body, like the human body. She makes the comparison. Um, considering the title of the book and how much of it's centered on people choosing to do things based on the recommendation of the apricity machine, I kept coming back to the implied irony of the reference. Uh, can you comment on machines and control in the book? Sure, yeah. Well, that word machine... That, that is the origin of it. And, and I did begin to think about machines, not just as little devices in our pockets, but as, you know, the human body, we, we are an organic machine, each of us. Um, the larger workings of society can be viewed of as a machine. And, you know, I wanted to explore and, and blend, blur, complicate um, the distinctions between those. Um, like I said before, I, I see the technology as an extension of us. We made it. Um, it is basically um, our will made manifest. Um, 
our desires made manifest. I mean, there, there are reasons we develop different technologies. It's to meet our needs, meet our wishes. Uh, the title, Tell the Machine Goodnight, I mean, you, you can you can hear it two ways, right? It can be, uh, in the book it is, Pearl saying, she, she begins talking to her, mm-hmm. her, her machine, her epicity device, as if it were a person, and there's a line, she does not go so far as to tell the machine goodnight. So in that sense, it's saying goodnight to a machine like you're tucking it in like a child going to sleep. Um, like it's become this person or this entity in your life that you have this affection toward. Uh, the other way of reading Tell the Machine Goodnight is 86 the machine. Yeah. Like, say goodbye to them. Mm-hmm. Get them out of your life. Um, yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I think we see sort of both, both of those dynamics in, in the story, in the book. Yeah, there's a certain level. Like, like while you're talking, I was thinking... Like I have a, you know, I have a, a Kindle, and I bought the like the, the dock, you know, for it, yeah. and like I'll get up in the morning and 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 ask it what the weather, you know, is supposed to be, and it's just such a bizarre thing to me that I'm speaking to Alexa or whatever, <laughs> you know, this <laughs> yes, AI. You give them human names. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's just strange, and 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 you know, Google kind of refuses to do that. It's just the the assistant. It, it's mm. so odd that it that we you know we have Siri and we have Alexa um, that we you know talk talk to by name. It's strange. Yeah, the author. Yeah, and the author Kristen Kishore, She talks about um, waking up in the morning and she was reaching for her phone. I mean, <laughs> a lot of us do. Right. And she was looking at her at her smartphone first thing in the morning, and she said, um, "What I should be doing in the morning is." looking at looking into myself looking at myself mm. and i'm not in there yeah <laughs> i'm not in the phone yeah it's maybe it's more difficult because i'm older because my, my son <laughs> he loves he loves that you know interaction um yeah. and i can just imagine i think about the you know his future and the future of kids growing up and how that's not going to be that that breach of intimacy that just odd feeling that you get is probably not going to exist in you know 15 years we will be talking to our machines and maybe telling them good night you know maybe we will yeah maybe we will and yeah and maybe that's okay i i i do i i think we're adaptable and i think we're smart um i think we're sometimes a little more clever than we are wise Mm -hmm. but i i do i i have hope that we're going to learn to use this technology well as it becomes more and more a part of our lives. I mean, maybe you and I are around the same age where I had a computer in my childhood, but not when I was born, and it was this huge box that mm-hmm. sat in my parents' dining room and played yeah. Oregon Trail. We played educational games. Yeah, <laughs> my yeah. Sister and I. yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, younger people, it will have been a part of their lives for their entire life. Yeah, um, yeah and they're going to have think they are going to have a different relationship to it and a way of navigating it. My nephew, he's 18, and he and a lot of his friends, I mean, they use technology a lot. He's very into competitive video gaming. Mm. But there are ways in which he says no to it that my mother, his grandmother, doesn't. Like, he's, he's really not into Facebook and social media, has a very limited presence on there, and it's because he says he doesn't 
he wants to have in-person experiences with people. He doesn't want to have online relationships with people. Yeah. I was just, while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe in 20 years, people look at, you know, read your book and say, there's this character in there. She wouldn't, she was weird. She wouldn't tell her machine goodnight, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like talking to her technology isn't normal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, all right. And the, we always finish with um, the question, do you always, or do you have any advice for beginning writers? Yeah. Um, read, read a lot, read everything. Um, don't be a book snob. I mean, I read, I read, I read everything from, you know, the books that win the literary awards to paperback mysteries to, I love young adult fantasy novels and all of that has informed my work. Um, so that would be, that would be my biggest piece of advice. And then I guess just, the idea that starting to write, facing that blank page, which is really a form of facing yourself and the weirdest little corners of who you are, it's, it's, it's a scary thing to do. It's a daunting thing to do. So, you know, be kind to yourself when you're doing it and just cheer yourself on as you're doing it um, and give yourself a lot of you know, warmth and encouragement. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. And that's our show for today. The Pub is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studio at WIPZ 101.5 FM. You can tune in Saturdays at noon to catch new episodes, and you can find The Pub on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at straylakemag.com for fiction, poetry, art, and, of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates on new content. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing.